This is a news update on University of Portsmouth Research, brought to you by Life Solved. I'm Emma Gaysford, and I'm talking to Dr. Mike Esbester, Senior Lecturer in History at the University of Portsmouth, about a tragic railway accident that happened 100 years ago and the lessons that have been learned. We're not just talking about an individual experience, we're talking about so many repeated experiences that affected so many different people and so many families in so many ways that thinking about all right, this one case, we can get to grips with many more experiences like that and help people find out a bit more about their family history, their past, their communities. Can you tell me a little bit about how you've got into studying railways and what your interest is? Yeah, sure. So I've always had a long-term interest in railways, railway history, and I've been lucky enough that I can do it as part of my job and teach the students about it and talk to members of the public and get them involved. And that's one of the things that this centenary work has come out of, that I'm working with colleagues at the National Railway Museum and at the Modern Record Centre at the University of Warwick and with colleagues at the National Archives on a project called Railway Work, Life and Death. And with teams of volunteers at those institutions, we are researching and trying to make the public better known uh, about accidents to British and Irish railway workers before 1939. Okay, were there there a lot of accidents? Was it quite a common occurrence? Unfortunately, yes. In 1913, a single year, uh, there were around 30,000 accidents to railway staff. Most of those were injuries, but still about 500 or so were fatalities. So it was one of the more dangerous workplaces at the time in certain grades, you know, clerical grades, not so much, but if you're working on the track in amongst the moving trains, very dangerous. Yeah, those, those figures are staggering. So can you t- talk to me a little bit about this particular accident that, the, um, that we're seeing the centenary of this Sunday? It happened at Stapleton Road or just near Stapleton Road Station on the outskirts of Bristol, as it was then. And... The six men involved, Charles Edmonds, George North, Charles Oakhill, Joseph Barrett, Stephen Francis and Arthur Hobbs, were part of a a team uh, known as a gang of eight men who went out to do some work on the ballast, so that's the the stone chippings underneath the railway tracks, and unfortunately they were hit by a train that approached them, caught them unawares. Five of them died at the scene, Stephen Francis died later. And the other two men, one, one escaped uninjured, although, again, who knows, kind of the, the psychological harm that was done. And uh, another, Charles Hobbs, who was in fact the, the uncle of Arthur Hobbs, uh, Charles Hobbs was injured. It left between the, the uh, six men who died, five widows and eight children. And there's a, a really tragic kind of coda to that, that the wife of Stephen Francis was actually pregnant at the time that he was killed, so she gave birth to a son uh, in early 1922. Uh, so again, a you know, son who never knew his father. You can imagine the kind of the impact it had on the, the families and the local communities as well. These were all local men. Four of them uh, lived and were then buried in Pilning, a village at that point near Bristol. You get the impression very much that they were you know, really embedded in their communities. Gosh, that's so sad, isn't it, to hear those stories? incredible that they were working on the line but they didn't hear the train is is there a particular reason for that there is in this case but it's it's actually not that surprising at times trains even steam trains could be fairly silent at times so it wasn't that difficult to be caught unawares if there wasn't somebody watching out 
for it. And that's actually one of the issues that comes into play in this accident, that the gang were hard at work and they didn't have someone who was dedicated to just keeping an eye out for trains. So they, six of the men had their backs to the approaching train. Uh, unfortunately, the, the train crew couldn't see the gang at the time. It was a bit misty. And there was a, a train passing on, on one of the other railway lines that kind of made it very difficult for anyone to see what was actually going on. Um, the, the driver of the train didn't know, didn't realise they'd, they'd hit anyone. The man who survived uninjured, Thomas Cousins, basically he, he was lucky. He looked up at the, the last minute, saw the train coming and jumped out of the way, but he didn't have enough time to, to warn his workmates. They wouldn't necessarily have been safe if they had had someone there to look out for them, but there's a good chance that they, they might have been. That's so sad. And, and actually, I was just thinking about the dates and thinking, I wonder if any of them had actually survived World War One. It's not entirely clear, uh, but it looks like a, at least a couple of them had done some war service. You know, obviously, when, when we have these accidents, it, there's a lot of investigation afterwards. And I imagine there would have been even 100 years ago. And, and I, I wonder if, if there was anyone to blame or, or what was to blame? You know, were there, were there some reasoning behind this? Yeah, so again, this is a, a really modern perspective that we, we investigate all accidents and, and we should do, absolutely, to try and find out what happened, what went wrong and to prevent them from happening again. For passenger train crashes at the time, that was the case. And in fact, that was the case since the 1840s. For workers, it really wasn't the case. Only about 3% of all staff accidents were investigated. And that's purely because there were so many accidents and too few inspectors to go out and do those investigations. It wasn't a given that an accident would be investigated. In this case, it was because it was such a serious accident and, and unusual. And it killed so many men in, in one single incident. Usually accidents happened in, you know, involving one or two. So we've actually got reasonable evidence on in this case about what happened and who was held responsible. And on this one, there's a bit of a caveat at the time. The railway industry was, was pretty bad. And, and the state inspectors, who are nominally neutral, were pretty bad about this at the, the default, you know, 95% of cases, they would say, oh, it was the men responsible. They were being careless. That's not necessarily the case. There were bigger issues at play, but it was quite easy to, to see, oh, well, they, they should have done this. And yes, in this case, it was found that the man in charge, Charles Edmonds, should have appointed a lookout. Um, the problem with that sort of understanding is, well, OK, that's very well and good, but if you have to appoint one man of your eight-man team to be a lookout, he's not doing the work. And if you're still told by your supervisors, your foreman, your bosses, well, you haven't got the work done on time, um, you, you, you know, because you've got the man as lookout, you've got a really strong incentive not to appoint a lookout just to get the work done and to focus on it. So I think there's a, you know, that was the judgment that was made at the time. And unfortunately, in this occasion, it, it was a bad judgment. But there's these systemic issues behind it that force workers on the ground into making decisions that turn out to be quite dangerous. So there were quite a lot of lessons learned and, and did things change as a result of this accident? It raised the prominence of that question about well should there be a permanent lookout attached to anyone who's working on the tracks which is something that National Union of Railwaymen, the, the major trade union for the rail industry, called for. The railway industry didn't like that because it would have a cost implication. And particularly in the 1920s, we're looking at a time of economic retrenchment for the railway industry, facing road competition, declining profits and so on. So 
there's really strong reasons why the industry doesn't want to do that. And in fact, they don't do that. They say, oh, well, we, we, we better train the workers better. Um, and one way of doing that is um, safety education. So providing uh, posed photographs showing kind of right and wrong ways of doing the job, which is something that the railway industry had pioneered in, in this country, just starting just before the First World War. So there was a booklet issued after this accident to directly aimed at the workers on the track to show them what they should and shouldn't be doing and to remind them about lookouts. But that was about it. It basically still remained in the discretion of the track workers whether or not to appoint a lookout. And that same issue about, well, do we have an extra man to do that? No, we don't. We can't do it because we don't have time. We'll get in trouble with the company and so on. And the really telling thing, I think, about this incident is that almost exactly six months to the day, there's another incident on the Great Western Railway, the same company, uh, elsewhere, a place called Wilmcote in Warwickshire, where four track workers were hit by a train and killed. Again, they didn't have a lookout because they couldn't spare one. Why do you think it's important to remember these events in history? Several reasons, but number one thing is the individuals involved. You know, I gave that statistic of, of uh, 30,000 individuals injured or killed in 1913 on the railways. Each one of those numbers, you know, a big number like that, is easy to dismiss when you get down to that individual level and say right well look these were individual people they had families they had friends they were in their communities then we can see the impact of what's gone on and we can see the these men and their families as as people the widows would have received a maximum of 300 pounds in compensation um, which is about 14,000 pounds today you know 14,000 pounds for for a life um, it's not enough particularly for those who did have children to sustain young children as well to to live off. So the local community and assisted by the the National Union of Railwaymen start raising money to try and provide a bit extra. Uh, So they hold a charity football match, a charity concert, uh, they take collections, you get reports in the the Western Daily Press, a local newspaper of uh, girl guides giving money, shops, individual shops taking collections. We've just had some contact from the granddaughter of Stephen Francis, so one of the men who was killed. And now obviously she didn't know her grandfather. Her father was, I think, about 10 or 11 when Stephen Francis was killed. I'm really kind of, I'm really keen to talk with her to find out a bit more and hopefully give her a little bit more information as well. Yes, and I think that's one of the lovely things about history, isn't it, is, is looking back and uncovering these untold stories of people, just ordinary people who, who you know, made the world tick. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I think that's something that's really important behind the, the Railway Work Life and Death Project is that we, you know, we are looking at ordinary people. And this is something very much that, that we do in the history team at Portsmouth is you know, we are interested in those day-to-day experiences because they were the, the experience of the majority of people. And it, it's very easy to overlook, but there's so many exciting and, and kind of extraordinary things that were just commonplace, if that's not too, too much of a kind of... Uh, what paradox, oxymoron, I forget, um, to, to put the two together, the, the extraordinary, ordinary. Would you say that railways are safe? I hope they are safer today than they were 100 years ago. Definitely, for both passengers and workers. You know, it's, it's one of the safest, if not the safest forms of travel in terms of miles travelled and, and so on for, for the passenger side of things, which is why you know, when something bad does happen, it's always big news because it's so rare and so infrequent. Um, so think about the uh, derailment at Stonehaven, uh, last year 
uh, which sadly killed three people, two two members of staff and a passenger. You know that was such big news because it's so unusual. That's not to say it's perfect. It absolutely isn't perfect. We still have staff deaths in the single figures, major injuries in the hundreds. Uh, so there's still work to do. Um, sadly, earlier this year in February, a man called Tyler Byrne uh, was working on the tracks near Surbiton and he was hit by a train and killed. You know, this is not an issue that's gone away. The industry has been making great progress. That includes you know, both the network rail, the people who run the tracks effectively, the train operating companies and freight operating companies and the trade unions. You know, they're, they're working together on this and that's really important. But yeah, there's, there's still some way to go. And is there anything that you could suggest or in, from your studies and, and your research that you would like to see change that would make a difference? Genuinely, I think the industry is doing the best it can. That said, what's, what's been heartening is you know, something that's come out of the Railway Work Life and Death Project is we are trying to uh, engage with the current industry to say, hey, look, we've got this vast body of, of evidence and experience from the past that we can draw on and it could be useful to you. And I'm pleased to say you know, there's been interest and we've been working with various different bits of the industry on that in terms of learning from the past. What's really interesting and why groups like organisations like Network Rail are are very interested in working and talking with us is that some of the issues are very different. Obviously, we're not running steam trains now, uh, but some of the issues are very similar. So this question about did they appoint a lookout man or not, or who was protecting the workers on the track in Stapleton Road, that's, that's a live issue to this day. One of the, the really interesting things is that, whereas I mentioned about the investigation saying, oh, it's the men were careless. Now, again, something Network Rail have developed over the last 20 years or so has been uh, the idea of what they call fair culture. And to paraphrase, what it effectively means is that the, the last thing that they will look at in an investigation as having a, kind of a responsibility is, is the workers themselves. They will look at absolutely everything else. They say, well, are we asking them to work too many hours? Is that the issue? It's not that they did something careless, but they might have made a bad mis- decision because they were tired, for example. You know, are there other factors that, that we should have taken into account that made that work unsafe rather than blaming the individual? So yeah, that is really positive. And again, we see a huge contrast between the, the project era, the pre-39 era, and what we're at now, which is was absolutely brilliant. Gosh, that's really interesting. Thank you so much, Mike. If you'd like more information about history at the University of Portsmouth, please visit www.port.ac.uk. To find out more about news, events and research from the University of Portsmouth, go to port.ac.uk or follow us at Portsmouth Uni on Twitter and Instagram.